Man, Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning, so open up your Bibles as you turn there. Last week, I titled uh, Ephesians as the pinnacle of all biblical doctrine and theology. It's the top. As a matter of fact, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said it this way about Ephesians. He said, Ephesians is the most sublime and majestic, majestic expression of the gospel. He said, it's difficult to speak of it in a controlled manner because of its greatness and because of its sublimity. He said, it's so great, so sublime, it's very actually difficult to speak about it. In other words, you get excited. And I found myself during the first service so excited about one word. It's going to take us 10 years to get through three words. Because of the depth, because of the value, because of the statements that are made in these opening chapters. And as I said, it's like the Grand Canyon. If you've been to the Grand Canyon, you can't just take it all in in one visit or one hour. It's too big. There's too much there. You go around one corner, it's another vista, another view, another archaeological fact to be understood or to be amazed at. And I'll tell you what, the book of Ephesians is no different because it determines what we know. It's doctrine. It determines what we know. And last week I asked you this question, who are you? Who do you think you are? In your achievement, what you've done in your life, who do you think you are right now? Most of us, most of us are thinking pretty clearly and we're not proud of ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Some of us are thinking unclearly and we're super proud of ourselves. You'll come down eventually, it's fine. Most of us though, when I ask who do you think you are, you're just kind of like, I don't know, (laughs) kind of white noise in the background, just kind of I'm just, I just, I sit in a pew. I'm not that special. What it, how does God look at you? Is it different than you look at yourself? I'd get a big yes from me. Oh, yeah. God looks at me entirely differently than I look at myself. So what do I need to do with that? You need to ask God how he wants you to think. He needs, you need to ask God what he wants you to know. So I'm going to ask you a different question. Not who do you think you are, but I'm going to ask you this question. What do you know? It's kind of a broad question, isn't it? What do you know right now? What do you know? What have you learned thus far in life? Where have you picked up your information? Where do you cross-check and fact-check? Facebook, bro. (laughs) Wikipedia for days. You heard of it? (laughs) Where do you get your foundational doctrine? Doctrine means teaching, truth. Where do you get it from? Do you follow your gut reaction, your, your gut intuition? You guys ever followed your gut intuition before? Like, man, I just feel it. You ever been wrong? You ever been dead wrong? You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, I was super wrong on that. I thought I wanted and I got and I don't want when I got. I thought I should and I did and I wish I shouldn't have done. Listen, where do, what do you know? Where do you base your knowledge from? Here's, have you thought about this? Our society is crazy. Here's what our society is doing. Our society writes our own history books. Who, who writes them? We write them. We write them down how we want. We write them down how we want to remember. This is what happened. Then we write our own textbooks. It's not history, but this is how things work now. We we make conclusions. This is what we like. Then based on our teaching and our learning, we write our own rule books, the law. Humans are down here just making stuff up. Have Have you just freaked out on this a little bit? Okay, get a cup of decaf and add some espresso to it. And just trip out on this a little bit. We write history, we write textbooks, and we write the rule books. That's going great, isn't it? And then we don't like what happens. We rewrite the rule book. God comes in. He says, uh, <laughs> how about I tell you how it is? Can you handle that? How about I just give it to you how, how it is? And you and I, we say, well, I kind of don't like that. I'd rather rewrite history. I'd rather articulate textbooks. I'd rather determine the rule book. Anybody have kids? This is how kids operate. Okay? Kids record their own history. They know how things happen. They got it. 
You know, then they record their own teaching, their own learning. Then they decide the rules. That's how they, but then you impose, if you're a good parent, you're like, actually, no, we, that's not how it happened. <laughs> okay, this, and that's not true. And this is going to happen. You ever give your kids a meal before you set down the meal and here it is. And the kid looks at it and says, I don't like that. And you're like, that's interesting. I appreciate your input. Let me know how it tastes after you're done. <laughs> you, know? you, you don't like it? Doesn't, cha- doesn't change anything. I'm looking at the menu and that's what you get. Just me? Okay. What do you know? Is it a majority opinion that, that rules your life? Think about it. Is it what's popular around you? Is it what's popular at the water cooler and in your office space and in your family dynamics? We all believe this. Why? Well, just it's what we believe. Why? Because it's easy. Because it makes us happy. It, it helps us live our lives the way we, we're writing the rule book. Or is what you believe what God declares, whether you like it or not? Is your foundation that epic, that secured, that founded? Because what you know, here's, why is this important? Because what you know determines what you do. When you're in a situation tested with trial, tested with tragedy, tested with temptation, what you know will determine how you navigate that. If you don't know the truth, if you don't have the foundation, then when things happen at sea or on land, or when temptation calls your number and you hear it ringing, if you don't know what God has declared, you will find yourself doing the wrong things. But if you know what God has declared, I know the truth, and the truth sets people free. Then you will know how to navigate, how to defend, how to stand, how to duck, how to move, how to run, how to, how to do it all. As a matter of fact, check this out. If you're studying, if you study the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all doctrine. That is truth. This is who it is. This is how it works. This is what he's done. This is what it means. This is how it looks over and over and over and over and over again. It's going to take us like a thousand years to get there. Then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he says, now here's what you do. And most of you guys know what the book of Ephesians covers. Parents submitting to their, or kids submitting to their parents and employees to employers and being employees to their, 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 their people that work for and being good employees and wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving wives and us submitting to the, to the wages of our warfare against the devil and standing against the wiles and all this stuff we got to do. Paul doesn't get there very quickly at all. He says, before we get to the do, let's get to the done. Before we get to the duty, let's make sure you understand the doctrine because if you don't understand the doctrine, you'll try and do the duty and you won't do the duty right. It's like a rap song. Is that a rap song? <laughs> Should be. You guys are tracking with me? You guys get this? The question I asked was very simple. What do you know? Is it your own opinion? And if so, has your opinion ever failed you? Is it the opinion of man? Is mankind doing that well? Or are you and your family, as Joshua said, as for me and my house, okay, we're going to serve the Lord. You guys do what you want. We're going to be standing, even if we don't like what's being served. Have you found this? Have you, are you, can you be humble enough with me or, or um, honest enough with me to say, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but man, some of the things in the Bible just, they mess with me. Why do they mess with you? Because you're flesh. Okay, you're not perfect. You're a mess. That doesn't mean you get to negotiate with the truth, though. What that does mean is you get to conform slowly but surely into the image of Christ. You get to change. It's better for you. Okay, I do this CrossFit workout from time to time, and I, I love the CrossFit gym, uh, and I'm, I'm fairly good at it, but some of the lifts I'm actually not good at. And when the coaches there stop me from lifting and say, you're actually doing that wrong, you know what I say? <laughs> so? I'm, I'm going to, that's my pride. I don't want to be corrected. I don't want to be directed and trained and critiqued. 
until you realize that doing it wrong gets you nowhere. Doing it right gets you where you want to be. Here's the deal. Your coach, your king, your father, your savior says, hey, 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 what do you know? Can I tell you what you should know? Because if you know what you should know, you'll do what you should do. And it takes a reversal sometimes of what you've been taught or what you think now. Not only does it take a reversal one time, but it takes an act all times. Every single day when you wake up to say, what, is, what do I feel like? Should I go with that? Don't follow your feelers, please. What has God declared? Should I go with that? The answer is yes. You go with what God has declared about you, about heaven, about hell, about sin, about each other about all things that pertain to this life that we're living. What do you know? Where are you getting it from? That's why it's so important that we study this book. Otherwise, we'll be likely to write our own history, write our own textbooks, and write our own rule books and find ourselves where we do not want to be. So the question I asked you last week was not, what do you know, but who are you? And the Bible has a lot to say about you. Do you know that? The Bible does not go dark on the subject of who you are. As a matter of fact, the Bible says 300 different times that you're a sinner. The Bible says 600 different times that God has wrath that is being stored up and coming for a sinful, God-rejecting people. That's what the Bible says. As a matter of fact, let me just clarify. When you were born, naturally, you were born sinfully, and then you proved it through your actions. You're a sinner by nature and choice. Do you realize that? When you were born... Okay, but here's the definition of sin, lest you be um, offended unnecessarily. The definition of sin is unperfect. So anybody in here perfect? Raise your hand. Perfectly forgiven. Let me do it the other way. Anyone in here not perfect? Raise your hand. And the people that didn't raise your hand, you just illustrated it by lying to us. That's fine. Thank you. Thank you. You're all born sinners. That's offensive. Sorry. Better to be offended here than there. You're born sinful, and then you prove it through your actions every single day. So, so, so. Are you a saint or an ain't then? How does God view you? Just ask yourself this. Who are you? Does God view you right now, if you're a Christian, as a sinner? Is God up in heaven stroking his glorious beard, looking at you, shaking his head, looking at you, shaking his head, saying, man, figure it out. Or does he look at you differently? As a Christian, does he say, that's a saint? Okay, that's beloved. That's chosen. That's adopted. That's sealed. That's set apart. That's equipped. That's anointed. How does he look at you? Is it based on your achievement, based on what you do, or based on your position in Christ? Because if you're seated in Christ positionally, then you will live a life practically as a saint, as a Christian, as a child of God, as an image bearer of the one who we love so much. So what does the Bible then say about you? What do you think about you? Who are you? Where do you get your knowledge from? And how does then this look in your life? Because again, what you know determines what you do. Last week, we talked about all the different levels of identity, who we are, the achieved identity. This is what we do naturally. You do something, you achieve that identity. This is the plight and the fight of all mankind forever until you die. I would clarify, this achieved identity, some days are good, aren't they? Don't you love the good days? Man, it couldn't get any better. How about the bad days? (sighs) Just want to go to bed at two in the afternoon. (laughs) You know, just, can we just start over tomorrow? It was a horrible day. Achieved identity, it messes with you. I would say this. Your achieved identity is something you're going to have to deal with the rest of your life. It is your secondary identity, though. Your primary identity is what God says about you. Done. Your secondary identity needs to be done to the glory of God, whether you're a snowboarder, a mechanic, a fisherman, a homelessman, a businessman, 
whether you're a professional, stay at home, whether you're an investor, a digressor, a wannabe, a runaway, whatever, whoever you are, to the Lord's glory, you do it. That's secondary, though. It's called achieved. The second identity we talked about was deceived. This is where Satan has a heyday with you. He comes into you and he accuses you of the past, the present, the future. He messes with you. He brings the, brings the headlines. Have you, do you remember, Luke, when you did this? Yes. And all of a sudden, this deceived identity. Is, well, you can't be a saint. You can't be part of God's kingdom. You can't teach today. You can't, oh, you, anybody else have this battle of the mind? What are you going to do about that? How are you going to handle that? Well, then the Bible teaches us that we have a received identity. That is what Christ has done for us, purchased for us, given to us. And now that you're in him, now that you're hidden in him, now you navigate differently. Now you fight back differently. And while you're not sinless, as a saint, you will sin less. Okay? As a matter of fact, I would say it this way. As a saint, you you will sin sometimes. But you will be a saint all of the time. Is this a dichotomy for you? Is Is this tension? It should be, because it is. It doesn't make no sense. Satan's going to mess with you. So we're going to take our time in the book of Ephesians because every single corner, every single stone, every single word has great depth that can change your life. I went to Israel one time. That was a quick tour. And we saw the whole land of Israel very, very fast. And then I went back two months later and brought 40 people, 39 people with me. And we did a tour of the country. And here's the deal about Israel is you have a guide there that knows as much as he can or she about Israel. And if you just point to a rock and say, is there anything historical about this rock? They'll say, oh, as a matter of fact, there is, and they'll tell you all about it. And you walk around, what about this stone right here? What about this, 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 this house, this building, this wall, this street, this? Everything in Israel is historical and has value, and you could spend years going to Israel, and there's more to be explored than you learned the time before. I just want you to understand, the book of Ephesians is the same thing. There's more to be explored, more to be enjoyed, more to be learned. I've been seeing on Facebook a lot of friends of mine. Uh, getting into the book of Ephesians. Oh, I'm excited. I'm going to read it. And I would just say, okay, after you read it, read it again. And then read it again. And then read it again. And read it slower. And then stay on one word. And make some application and journal. And make it who you are because this is where you get what you know, which will then determine what you do. I love reading the Bible. And then I'm like, I wonder, I wonder if anybody's liked my Facebook post. I think I'll check. Anybody else do that? Man, this is so good. I wonder what the weather's like for the next two and a half years. And you check out, you know, site. And you look at this, you're like, oh, I'm going to check my bank account. I just checked earlier, but maybe it's changed. Is there, is there so many distractions from seeking God and his word and from exploring him and his greatness? Man, we are so messed up. ADD, HD, you know, high definition attention deficit disorder. That's how I roll. Woo! Lord, help the boy. What do you know? It's going to change everything. This is the one, cha- one thing that changes all things, okay? Now, here's the deal. Morality is not determined by majority. Okay, the world around us says certain things about you and certain things about me. It says it's good. It's not as bad as some. We're good. Is that what God says? Satan would say to you, even as a Christian, you're horrible. You're a failure. Have you seen? Do you know? Have you checked? Man, what does God say then? Because to the non-Christian, when I tell them the Bible says you're a sinner, they look to the majority and say, majority says? And they say, no, we're not sinners. We're actually highly evolved mammals with opposing thumbs. Super lucky. (laughs) Really? Yeah, majority says. We're the luckiest on the food chain. It's just crazy. It's crazy to be here. Look at us. We're so ordered. Really? And then God says other things about you, that you're created in his image. 
See, it's not run by a majority. Morality is not decided in that way. It's decided by God. He decides if you're in or out, if you're a saint or an ain't. And you just have to find yourself submitting to the meal that's been prepared by him for you and eat the saint one. Say, I'll be a saint if it's that easy, if it's that, if it's that prepared, if it's that cut and dry. And find yourself submitting to God and having him rewrite your identity for you. Because again, you were born sinful. Does God still look at you that way? You're still sinning. I get it. I see your Facebook. We all do. How do you see yourself? Okay. Who do you think you are? As a matter of fact, I was considering this identity. I'm, I'm serious. I'm just going to say it. This will change everything about you. We are achievement identity driven. If I get the promotion, if I get the title, if I get the keys to the corporation, if I get the, the placard, if I get the notoriety, oh man, you stroked my ego. I am finally doing what I want to do. What if you don't get those things? What if you get sick? What if it gets taken away? What if somebody surpasses you? What if you just wake up with a headache and it turns into something else? What if everything changes? And this one thing changes all things. That is his identity over you. I like recovery groups because of what they do. They help people walk in recovery, help people walk in newness. One thing that I struggle with, and I haven't had the time to study it out, but it's in a, an Alcoholics Anonymous type, type group, is that if a person's been dry for 25 years, they still introduce themselves as an alcoholic. And I, I just don't, I see them as a new person. They have been an alcoholic, and alcoholism has maybe explained them, but it does not define them. You're not an alcoholic. You're a new creation. You have a proclivity to alcoholism. You need to be careful and be aware of it. We all agree with that. You need to walk in recovery, but that's not who you are. You're new. You're different. You're changed. You're a saint. You're set apart. Why? Because I'm so good? No, because of Christ's declaration. Do you believe it? What you believe, what you know will determine what you do. Again, the world on the outside of Christendom doesn't believe they're sinners. Interesting to me how many Christians that know Jesus don't believe they're saints. You're going to heaven when you die. Man, that was close. But until you get there, you don't expect anything from yourself. You don't expect any greatness. You don't expect any victory. You don't expect anything profound. You just get out of jail, get out of hell free. Yeah, sign me up. No dummy. Well, I'm a dummy, but I'm not that dumb. What about the victory in Christ? What about the reality of the power that God gives us for the now? Do you, do you believe it? That's where it starts. Do you believe that what he's declared over you? Because it starts with what you know, which will determine what you do. These are so profound uh, implications and thoughts. Now, let's look at verse 1. I just want you to understand this as we unpack this. And uh, we are going to get through one verse today. <laughs> Setting the pace kind of high, I know. And um, if that's too slow for you, next time you're on stage, you can set your own pace. But uh, <laughs> right now, that's how we're rolling. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who were in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul just goes right on record and says, it's God's will that I'm Paul, the apostle. God picks the leadership. God picks your position. God picks roles. You can realize that easily, or you can realize that the hard way. Either way, you'll realize it. Okay? God sets up leadership. God made you, as he made Paul, exactly who you are, where you are, and what you are. And when you surrender that to the Lord, it becomes profound and powerful. 
Okay, you just need to understand. Do you believe that, that God is in charge of your life? He's made you a male. He's made you a female. He's made you prosperous. He's made you in poverty. He's made you with a family. He's made you a minority. He's made, he's made you in his purpose, in his will, who you are. If you don't believe that, then you're your own little God making little decisions, and you're doing real bad at it, okay, just so you know. But if you can step back and say, I am who I am by the will of God, I'm Pastor Luke Frechette, teaching pastor at South Beach Church. By the will of God. It's not my choice, man. It's his. And when you settle into his choice for your life, guess what? It gets fun, okay? It gets real. It becomes biblical. Paul here. Paul finds himself in the same category, in my opinion, as Moses, King David, Elijah. Okay, this man changed the world. Probably one of the most, outside of Jesus Christ, important people in the world, Paul. Maybe the most. Think about it later. Maybe the most. 2,000 years later, what do we do? Hey, let's go to church and read Paul's letter. That's pretty powerful. He wrote more than 13 letters in the New Testament. I believe he wrote 14 letters in the New Testament. And he goes down in history as one of the most important characters and missionaries and pastors and church planners for God's cause. Now, he didn't always start out that way, though. For him, actually, in the book of Ephesians to say, Paul. I just wonder if he stopped right there. I just thought, that's so funny. His birth name was Saul. You guys know that. His, his real name was Saul. And Saul meant requested one, chosen one, the man. And as he lived his life, he did his own things. He eventually found himself hating Jesus, hating Christians, killing Christians because they loved Jesus. And Jesus flexed his glory. You guys remember on the Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9? Jesus flexed his glory. Jesus is so kind. Paul's on a tirade killing Jesus' bride. So what does Jesus do? Makes him a saint. Probably wouldn't have played that card, you know? I'm glad I'm not on Jesus' A-team. Like, whoa, you're going to do... Jesus pursued Paul, Saul, knocked him off his feet onto his keister where he found himself humbled and blinded, tapped out to Jesus and asked him a good question. Here's the question he asked. What do you want me to do? That's a good spot to start. Even this morning with Jesus Christ, what do you want me to do? And he told him what to do. He said, go to... Uh, straight street there's a guy there waiting for you <laughs> i got this whole thing figured out man believe it or not and he began to then restore saul and change saul into paul saul means requested one paul means little small and paul began to see himself as a servant of the most high god one who's not qualified in and of himself even though he was the most qualified jew in the world and at this contrast he said all those things in the past rubbish dung everything behind me it's not about me about moving forward in Christ. Where? In Christ. That was his message, in Christ. Under 40 times, just over 30 times in this book alone, it's in Christ, 216 times in his 13 letters, in him, in the beloved, in Christ, in heaven. That's the ticket. It's the one thing that changes everything. Paul knew the Lord better than most of us ever will, and he knew that God had picked him. God had put him in that position I just need you to settle into that fact right now. God changes lives. God changes people. Okay? God has a plan. If God can change Saul to Paul and then change the world and then change you through Saul who became Paul, and if God can do that, we're in good, we're in good company. 
God has a plan for the restoration of your soul, for our country, for people in general, okay? And it doesn't have a red or blue picture behind it, okay? It's not God's plan for the future moving forward. His plan is regeneration of mind and soul, okay? God won't be stopped. He's got his leaders picked out, and I would just have you settle into who you are today. It's by God's will, okay? Just accept it. Well, I don't like it. Eh, That's not going to change. Well, I don't understand it. That's not your job. (laughs) I could go on. You get the point. God picks, okay? I remember, and you guys know my story, God told me at age eight that I was going to be a pastor. Spoke to me, Bend, Oregon, Westside Church, Foursquare. What did I say to God? No. Age eight, bratty little kid. What's happening today? (laughs) God wins! God wins! This is the good news. This is the good news. God is, and here's Paul, I just, he's in jail, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And I bet he just started laughing, belly laughter. (laughs) Just thinking about all that that meant because that wasn't how he had planned it. That wasn't how he got his start. It was by God's will. God wins. Just hang tight. God will not be stopped. He's going to accomplish all things that he wants to do through your life and through my life as well. When Paul finally gave his life to the Lord, he began serving the Lord immediately. Uh, He would travel upwards of 20 miles per day, planting churches, pastoring churches, ministering, evangelizing. He would go into cities, and one of two things would happen in every city that Paul got to. Either a riot or a revival would start or simultaneously both. Okay, he would either see a church be born and people saved, or he would see people riot and pick up stones to kill him. Ah! Because when Paul would show up, he would preach the truth. He would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would preach the truth of mankind. And two reactions happen every single time. You either reject it or you receive it. That's what happens. It's like when the sun comes out and it shines upon ice. The sun doesn't have to do anything. It just shines on ice and the ice melts. It softens. When that same sun just shines upon clay, it hardens it and it cracks. There's two reactions to the gospel every single time. Receive it. Ah, I needed that. Or you reject it. Because when Paul would come, he would speak against people's ideas and their idols. The Bible does the same thing today. When I read the Bible, it speaks against my base ideas and opinions and my little idols that I have stored up all around me, all my things. And I have a choice. I can either receive it and say, I don't like it, but it's right. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to, you're God. Or I could say, you know what, I'd like to, can I just, can we legislate something new? Can we just, I don't like it either, so let's, let's make it so we like it. Let's make a law. <laughs> what? This isn't going to end well. Well, anyways, Paul gave his life to the Lord and would preach that same message to the people in cities like Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth and Athens and all over Greece and Asia Minor, Turkey, modern-day Turkey. As a matter of fact, he would say of himself, I suffer and I have the marks of Christ within my body. He was scarred from the toes to his skull. As a matter of fact, he said it this way in 2 Corinthians 11. This is Paul. I'm just, we're talking about Paul here. I want you to understand who wrote this book. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians. He said, thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Can you imagine just like chilling out in the ocean? Just, I'm going to die. And then you don't die. Multiple shipwrecks, multiple beatings, multiple stonings, multiple rejections, multiple levels of violence leveled at him. And I would just ask you this question, maybe by way of just conviction. How committed are you to Christ? I mean, 20 miles a day? On foot? 
Everywhere he goes, he'd say, and he even said this, one of my favorite portions of scriptures, right on Acts 20, 21, 22, when he spoke to the Ephesian elders. And he said, I don't know what the future holds, but this I do know, chains await me. And I'm like, do you know the future or not? He said, you don't, but you said chains await you. And he knew he was going to get devastated in Jerusalem. And he said, but none of these things move me, for I do not hold my life dear to me. I don't care what happens to me. Don't raise your hand. Is anybody in here really concerned what happens to you? I'll raise it for you. <laughs> yeah, duh. That's why I lock my door. <laughs> <laughs> the other day I was navigating in my mind, maybe you do the same thing, a response on Facebook to a question asked me. And I was like, well, if I say this, then they might think that. And if I don't say this, they're going to think that. And if I say this, they might say that. And I began to, how do I answer this question? It's kind of a hot button, you know, private message. And if I put it in writing, they could be used against me and all this. And I could suffer and this could happen and it could all end. And it could be this and it could be jail time and it could be awesome. You could be getting, you're like, what's the question? (laughs) And I began to think about, are we willing to sacrifice at all? Are we willing to sacrifice at all to the Lord? Not it all. That comes later, but at all. That's a great question. See, in America, we, we just, we're so safe. We're so sanitized. We should be able to do this without bloodshed, spiritually and emotionally. We should be able to do this without conflict. We should be able to do this and still get along. I get it, and I'm, I'm a peacemaker. Okay, trust me, I am. But the reality is you got to know what God says is true, and you got to bear the consequences with love. And you may be different. You may be ostracized. You may be eliminated. You may be kicked out. You may be minimized. You may be overlooked. You may be looked over. (sighs) Paul is in jail. Eventually, his head would be cut off by Caesar Nero. And I just asked myself, how committed am I to Christ? I'm committed to going to heaven when I die. Like, I'm no dummy. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm about it. Like, let's go to heaven when we die. Okay, okay. What about the process? Well... Your identity is what's going to carry you through. Your identity is going to be what helps you to be a wife, to be a husband, to be a brother. Your identity is in Christ. That's what he starts with here. So Paul here, that's what we're talking about, Paul. This apostle Paul, by the will of God. And he writes to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a big city at that time. It was the fourth largest city in the world. Okay, imagine it to be synonymous with like an L.A. or a New York. Okay, diversity, density, lots of people. This was it, highways, byways, uh, all kinds of commerce going on and trading. This is the epicenter, and he's in jail. Imagine the heartbeat now. What do I say to my church in Ephesus? How do I go about this letter? What do I say to them? What, what would you say, by the way, from a jail letter written to your friends? Please send a blanket. The top ramen's pretty nice. <laughs> would you talk about yourself? I've been in jail. It's hard not to talk about yourself because you're, you're not where you want to be. Paul here, pastor's heart, says, oh, my brothers and sisters in Ephesus. I was there for three years with them planning this church. Oh, I need to encourage them. I can't be there with them, so I'm going to write them a letter. I want you guys to understand the importance of this letter. It's not just, hey, how you doing? Things are good. Sunny sometimes, rainy other times, got to go. I wouldn't make the Bible. It wouldn't be biblical. Instead, he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to equip you, chapters 1 through 3, to live chapters 4 through 6. Okay? 
I'm going to tell you what God has done. Because if you don't get this there, church in Ephesus, I'm your pastor. I'm not going to see you again. I need to give you something to live. Did you know that Ephesus had the second or one of the seven wonders of the ancient world? It was the temple of Artemis. It might, might pop up, it might not. It was a Greek colony. It was a Roman colony at times. And eventually, that's just a replica of what it would have looked like. And Paul uh, planted a church there. Did you know that in its latter days, when its final occupied status, Ephesus would go down in history as a Christian portion of people, a Christian city? Okay, the, the government was Christian. The people were Christian. I didn't know that. I, mean, I, just, I, just, I read it last night. I was like, are you kidding me? Paul in prison writes to the church at Ephesus. There's a church there that gets the book, believes the book, lives the book, and all of a sudden, at its end of days, Ephesus is Christian. Hallelujah is right. God changes lives. God changes people when you believe what he's declared. Right now, I'm just going to answer the question for you. You, by and large, don't believe what God has declared about you. I guarantee you don't. It's still true whether you believe it or not. That's where the good news comes. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's still good. God, it's still valid. God still treats you the same. You still have the same access that he says. But you don't live that way. Guaranteed. I guarantee you, and the church at Ephesus didn't live this way until Paul sent him a letter. So would you just read this? I need you to know the riches of Christ that are available to you. Otherwise, you're not going to make withdrawals on this account. Can you imagine if you had an account with an unending supply of resources? And yet you're waking up every morning looking for crumbs. Telling your creditor, I'll pay you later. <laughs> and you have all this money. Can you imagine how foolish that would be? I wonder if God looks at you and looks at me that way. And the way that we navigate our emotional life, our spiritual life. The Bible says we're more, more than overcomers. Don't raise your hand, but how many woke up feeling that way this morning? I'm an overcomer. Your spouse hits you. Shut up. <laughs> you don't wait. I, how you feel is not as important as what God declares is true. Don't follow your feelers all the time. Okay? Your feelers are oftentimes broken. They're still there. I get it. They're your feelers. I get it. But, but what you know... Okay, is more important how you feel. What is true will set you free eventually. And so Paul writes uh, to this church that he had loved uh, so much, and he wanted to see the city changed, and it was. Uh, so what's Paul going to write about then? What's he going to address? What's his first topic that he's going to bring to their attention? I would say to you, the very first thing that comes out of his mouth might be the most important thing. That this might be the one thing that changes everything because Paul wanted them to know for sure what the Lord had done for them. Otherwise, they wouldn't know how to live. And again, in Paul's writings to the church at Ephesus, 30 separate times, more than 30, just under 40, he uses the phrase in Christ, in Christ, in him, in the beloved. He does this 216 times in his letters throughout. And he says, look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now he's spoken of who wrote it, how he got there. To the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. As he sits in his cell thinking of the church in Ephesus, he uses this adjective, this, this descriptive word, saints. Yeah, saints. That's, that describes them real well. How many of you guys think the church at Ephesus was kind of like ours? Some real faithful people and some people that need a lot of work. Some people that are showing up every Sunday, some people that are showing up as CEOs. You know the CEOs, right? Christian and Easter only. Christmas, Christmas and Easter only. Do you guys, do you really think the church at Ephesus was just full of perfect people? 
We think it was very similar to our church, people showing up, maybe a few regrets in their past, both their big past and their recent past. Maybe some people showing up to Ephesus Christian Fellowship hungover, again, with their pregnant girlfriend. You think it was, you think it was just imagine yourself, was it a real church like ours, or was it, would you, is this the word you would choose to address the people you love? Hey, saints. Okay, again, when I woke up this morning, I wasn't like, hey, St. Luke's here, hard on. I'm going to give him all I got. I'm a saint. You know, we just don't know what this word means, and we don't use it freely in our own language. And Paul, on purpose, okay, uses this word in order to lay down the foundation of their identity. Okay? Now, when you're in Christ positionally, you're a saint. And when you're a saint positionally, you'll become a saint practically. You'll find yourself actually walking in sainthood. You'll find yourself acting like the way that God has already declared you uh, to be. And in Christ, you're a saint. The Bible says that outside of Christ, you're an ain't. There's only two kinds of people, saints and ain'ts. That's just the bottom line. You're one or the other. You're in or you're out. And if you're in Christ, I don't care if you feel like it or even acting like it. By Christ's declaration, the next verse actually starts with grace. That's the word. Verse two, grace. How's this even possible? God made you a saint by grace. Now, I've asked a lot of questions. I'd just like to include you guys, keep you off your phone while I'm preaching. How many of you guys feel like a saint right now? I don't feel that way. I know what the Bible says. I don't feel that way, though. I didn't wake up this morning feeling saintly. How many of you guys, let's take it a step further. You're going to go to work tomorrow and say, I need a new name tag, boss. I'm I'm thinking saint. Saint would work. Saint Joe, you know, Saint Laura, you know, Saint, you know, Saint Chris. Sounds good, right? And your boss is going to give you one that says St. Bernard. <laughs> that's all you get. Like, that's all you get, bud. Interesting, isn't it? Now remember, majority doesn't determine morality. This, you're, this is a house full of people that don't look at them, themselves as saints. Okay, and God doesn't care. He says you are. Deal with it. The world is full of themselves looking at the mere not as sinners. And God says, no, no, you're a sinner. Until you're a, a, sin, until you're a saint, you're a sinner. It's just the way it is. But I wonder how many people are walking in a half power and in a half fullness because we don't really believe the identity that God has established already. Praise the Lord, George. St. George. Here's one of the reasons, and I don't mean to uh, bash or discredit uh, in any unnecessary way, but I would say that that word saint has been hijacked and, uh, in my opinion, has been misunderstood and misapplied throughout the ages. Most of us, when we hear the word saint, we think of St. Jude, St. James, St. Peter, St. Paul, and we think of all these saints that have been sainted over the years and maybe have a statue of one or a sticker of one or a plaque of one or a candle of one, all these saints, right? We've seen that in the past through the early Catholic Church. And as a matter of fact, one of the reasons, and I just want to kind of bring attention to this because I think this is the one thing that will change everything, is the process of sainthood in the Catholic Church today, 2016, January the 24th, that's today. This is the current process to become a saint. I just want to help you. Why don't you look at yourself this way? Why is this word not on our um, platform? of what we say. Here's the first uh, of 10 requirements to become a saint according to the Catholic Church. You guys ready for this? Okay. Uh, Number one, if you want to be a saint in the Catholic Church, you have to uh, be Catholic. (sighs) How many of you are like, I'm out? (laughs) Guess I don't, you know, it didn't take long. I guess I'm not a saint. Second thing, you have to die. 
You have to be a Catholic first, and then while you're a Catholic, you have to die as a Catholic, so you can't be a saint as, as alive. Now, I'm just using simple hermeneutics, okay, biblical study. Paul is not talking to dead people when he wrote this, to the saints that are in Ephesus. To, they're there. Okay, just, it's pretty, I'm just saying. So the first thing you got to do is be Catholic. Second thing is you got to die. And the third thing, this is current status right now, which you have to do, the current thing you have to do is a local devotion has to grow up around your memory. And uh, you die, and then people make a memorial. They talk about you. They think about you. They pray to you. They honor you. You just become kind of a legend in your own. That's what has to happen. Then the fourth thing that happens is that has to be investigated. So guys with big hats show up in clipboards, and uh, they look into your life. They ask other people, was he really all that? Was she really all this? And they investigate this, and they put it all into a file. Uh, the fifth thing happens is they send that to the local bishop, who also investigates this idea of your, um, your veneration and, and your, your greatness. He then sends it to the Vatican all the way to Rome. He sends it to there. And there's guys with even bigger hats and bigger clipboards. And these guys, the bigger the hat, the more power you have. And uh, so these guys then go through the file. They look into it. That's step number five. Number six, then people, this is to be a saint, then people start praying for a post-mortem miracle uh, that you would heal somebody or do something miraculous from heaven and then you'd show on earth through the answering of a prayer. So people begin to pray to St. Luke or to St. John or St. Deb or you know, whatever, whoever, whatever you name. And if something happens then, a miracle, post-mortem, that means after death, miracle, uh, then you go to the next step, uh, step number seven. The Vatican sends the guys with the big hats and the clipboards over, and they investigate the miracle, and uh, they come over, and they ask, and they check, and they look, and, and they really want to actually disprove this miracle. This happens today. They got, call doctors and lawyers because they don't want to give this status out unnecessarily. And uh, uh, number eight, um, after they've in- investigated this and they've actually confirmed that the miracle happened, they declare you're blessed. Okay, you're, you're not there yet. You're blessed. Like you were a Catholic. You died. You became a legend. They investigated your life. You healed somebody after miracles after death. How many of you guys are doing miracles before death? How you doing with that? You know what I'm saying? Like, you got to do miracles after you die. Like, woo-hoo. I don't know. Anyways, um, so after they confirmed that the miracles happened, um, that's uh, number eight. You're declared blessed, and then uh, they go into um, a greater uh, committee comes together, and they start praying for another miracle. Number nine, no, not just one. One's not enough. You got to get another one now, just to make sure we're not doing this wrong. And so, after another miracle happens to confirm your sainthood, then after that, it goes back to the Vatican. Then they take a vote on it after all of that and decide if you can be a saint or not. Um, now, I'm not sure about you. Um, but after all that happens, it's, it, you know, they, they take your name and they, they name schools after you and streets after you and they do all kinds of stuff. When Paul writes it, he kind of just cuts to the chase. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus. What's Paul's number one step to becoming a saint? <laughs> Let Jesus do everything. Trust Jesus for everything. Get into Jesus. Hide yourself in him. The Bible says this, that when Jesus walked on the earth and people walked with him and tried to do great things alongside him, the father stopped him and said, knock it off. Listen to my son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm so fired up about my son. And if you would just get fired up about my son, I will be fired up about you. We want to get fired up about ourselves and do well so God gets fired up about us. How's that going for you? Lord, I did great that one time. Kind of, my motives were all messed up. (laughs) 
But when you're fired up about Jesus Christ and you elevate him and he's lifted up, he draws all men to himself. When you find your full joy in his presence, God is blessed by you. Right now, there's people here waiting to be a blessing to God. Oh, man, I wish I could just get over this stuff. I wish I could stop being a jerk. I wish I could stop being addicted. I wish I could stop being selfish. I wish I could stop being weak. I wish I could stop sinning so God would accept me. And God's looking at you going, hey, man, I sent my son for you. You accept him, and I'm excited. Okay, I got three kids, and if you love my kids, like you love them, you appreciate them, okay, I love you. Like, oh, you love my kids? Oh, tell me, tell me more about my kids. Okay, you don't like my kids? You got problems with my kids? I might fight you. Right? Might, might be fun. How much more so, God, when he sent his only son to die for the world, when you get excited about Jesus and not yourself, when you forgive yourself for sinning because you trust in Jesus, when you explore the riches of Christ, when you're brought to tears because of Christ, when you're brought to joy because of Christ, when you're brought to peace because of Christ, when you evangelize because of Christ, when you're bold because of Christ, when you're healed because of Christ, when you're excited because of Christ, God's in heaven quieting everyone else. Saying, Look at them. They're talking about my son. They're talking about Jesus. How many Christians today just talk about themselves, talk about each other, talk about our failures, talk about our government, talk about this? Man, Paul starts his letter out in jail. How can I encourage my brothers? Huh. Hey, saints, hey, faithful, in Christ. And then I need you to get this. When you read Ephesians on your own, 3 through 14, the longest, verse, longest sentence in the Bible, when you're reading this, I want you to look at it, okay? We'll get there in a couple months. I want you to, here's, here's how I want you to read it. Verses 3 through 14 are all things Christ has done for you. So there's two ways to read it. You can actually read it as in what I get out of it, What's been done for me, that's, that's proper, that's okay. But you need to understand that verses 3 through 14 are a declaration of the work of Jesus Christ. He has done so much, it gets the longest sentence in the world. He has done it all for you. We win, we benefit, we explode, our faces melt. Heads explode spiritually because of what God has done. Your choice is to go with majority morality and say, well, I'm better than somebody else, so I guess I am technically a saint, lowercase s, of course, because I'm not as bad as, you know, Lucifer. Oh, good job. Or, or you say, no, no, no. I'm highly beloved. I'm, I'm a prized possession. I'm an inheritor of the kingdom of God. Why? In Christ. If you think anything different, you don't trust the work of the cross. You don't believe in the power of the resurrection. You don't believe in the holiness of God. You don't believe it. You're believing your own deceived identity and achieved identity. Wow, you've been in that ditch before? Yeah, I've got a four-room condo in the ditch. You know, I live over here. I live in this achieved, deceived identity. We all do. And why would he talk to them in this language then? Because it's paramount, because it changes everything. It's the one thing that will change all things. Because here's the deal. If you don't understand this, you'll only have the partial gospel. Anybody want a partial gospel? The partial gospel is Jesus died for your sins, and when you die, you'll be allowed to go into heaven. That's partial, okay? How many of you guys have figured out that since you've given your life to Jesus Christ, there's a lot of living to be done? There's a lot of decisions. There's a lot of days in between eternity, okay? 
And if you don't believe that you're a saint, if you don't believe you have the riches, if you don't believe you're equipped, if you don't believe that, if you're not walking in this identity, then your between eternity and salvation is going to be a partial life. It's going to be all messed up. Matter of fact, let me make this very practical. Because you want to, I want you to have something to hold on to. Why is this so important? You're in a battle, okay, for your existence. You're in a battle for your life, for your family, for your legacy. And Satan wants to deceive you and he wants to trick you and he wants to make you do stupid stuff. Okay. He wants to take you down. He, just wants, to make, he wants you to wake up depressed, wake up lethargic, wake up weak. And then when stupid stuff comes along, okay, I guess I'll do this. I guess I'll look at that. I guess I'll think this. And all of a sudden you go down that path we all know well. If your identity is intact, and it is, I don't know if you believe it yet or not, but if your identity is intact and you're standing on it, my identity is different. I don't do that stuff. I've done it. I know how. I could teach you. But my identity is different now. I'm not that person. I'm actually changed. If your identity is secure, you will find yourself strengthened when tempted. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was brought into the desert and tested for 40 days and 40 nights. And when Satan tempted Jesus, Satan had tempted Adam and Eve prior. He used the same tactics on both. Guess what? He's using the same tactic on you. When he tempted Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, he said, if you do this, you'll be this. As if their identity wasn't enough. He attacked their identity. You need to upgrade. You need more. You'll be like God. God had already told us in Genesis 1.26, let us make them like us. Let's make them in our image, in our likeness. Satan attacked their identity. Fast forward thousands of years to this desert experience. And here's what Satan said. Listen, this is where it gets practical. Satan said to Jesus Christ, if you are the son of God, then test the Lord. Turn these rocks into bread. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Come to the top of this mountain. I'll give you everything. He tested him. Here's how he he attacked his identity. If you're the son of God, you think Jesus knew who he was? Okay, he did. And he attacked his identity, trying to get him to slip up and do stupid stuff, to live a different life. Satan is going to today, tomorrow, and the rest of your life attack your identity. He's going to use that weakness in your own life, in your achieved identity failures, in your deceived identity deception. He's going to attack you and get you to fall into lesser things and to live a life that is not valiant, that is not amazing, that is not awesome. And so Paul, looking at his church in Ephesus before his head would be cut off, said, I got to tell him something. Should I tell him, be strong, submit to your boss, love your wife? What should I tell him? Yeah, tell him all those things. Tell him how to do it, though. Tell him about what's already been established. You're in Christ. You're confirmed. It already happened. You're rich. You're secure. You're able. And let me just end this portion. Did we get through one verse? Did we at least do one verse? We did one verse. It was just a story. The story is told of a man in the late 1800s who saved up his money in order to migrate from Europe to America for a better life. And he bought the one-way ticket, said he's going to go to America, get a better job, get a better life, and send money back to his family to eventually bring them over. And as he got on this two-week journey to sail over the Atlantic from Europe to America, he found himself on the boat with everything he owned, with about two weeks' worth of supplies. About a week into the journey, though, he found himself running out of food. The food he had brought was growing moldy, and he found himself getting hungry and fatigued. Wondered if he'd made the right decision. All we could afford was a ticket to America, a better life, one way. But he didn't have the right provisions, the necessary supplies to make it. After about a week, he found himself leaning over the railing, 
looking into the darkness, wondering if he'd made the right decision, fatigued, exhausted, maybe even considering suicide at this point. When out from the galleys, out from the dance floor, out from the banquet hall, came one of the more rich guests, stumbling and coming out for a breath of fresh air, and saw this guy and noticed his demeanor and said, you all right? What's, what's going on? And he told him, well, I'm just, I've been on the ship for a week, and I'm hungry, and I'm just, I'm, I'm second guessing. And this one patron who'd come from the first class, come from the banquet hall, looked at him and said, well, do you have a ticket? Did you buy a ticket to get on the ship? Yeah, I bought a ticket. And the patron began to then explain to him, well, those tickets, they're all inclusive. If you had a ticket to get to our destination, you also have a ticket to enjoy the ride. Everything in that ticket is included that I've been enjoying for this last week, all the dancing, all the mingling, all the things. Come on, let's eat right now. And he found himself just hanging on. Just got to get there. And even when I get there, I was like, how's that going to work? How many Christians? This will change everything for you. You're stoked. You're, you're, you're pretty safe. You're, you're, you're pretty fired up. You're glad you're going to heaven. You don't doubt that because you've got no other better plan. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm going to heaven when I die. That's all I know, okay? Well, how you doing until then? Starving. Weak. Depressed. Scared. Wondering if I made the right decision. No options, though. And the Lord would look to you and say, do you have a ticket? Oh, you do? <laughs> Let's start to declare some stuff about you then. Okay? You're a saint. You're blessed. You're called. You're equipped. You're chosen. You're sealed. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Three chapters he goes into what is ours to enjoy in Christ. And all of you in here, I'm telling you what, have a desire to make God happy. You do. Most of you are going about it saying, if I would just do something great for God, he'd be happy. If I'd quit smoking, quit drinking, start sharing, start loving, stop this, start that. If I would do these things, God would love me more. That sounds like achieved identity to me. What if you just found yourself, tears flowing, hands raising, in your identity that's already been established in Christ? I am satisfied in Jesus. And when you're satisfied in Jesus, all the riches of God are yours to enjoy. God does backflips in heaven. Okay? When you are fired up on earth in Jesus. Majority doesn't determine morality. God does. He says of you today, you're a saint. You don't feel it. I don't either. But when you believe it, it changes everything. Next time Satan tries to tempt you to do something, I'm, I'm a saint. I don't need to do that. I don't even want to do that. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I know who I am. I'm on mission. I'm on journey. I am accepted. I'm different than that. And watch the greatness of God. Watch the grace of God. That's the next verse. Starts with the word G, grace, come into your life, which leads to peace for all of us in Christ Jesus. I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads and to pray with me as the worship team comes up and the communion is brought out as we seal this, as we worship. The reason we worship in this fashion, taking communion, is to say we believe that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was sufficient for our needs, that we can die with peace. But Lord, in Jesus' name, as we prepare now, I don't want to just die with peace. I want to live with peace. I want to live in power. I want to live, Lord, full. As somebody who's on the vessel towards heaven but enjoying every last minute of it. Lord, I fear there are so many, even in this room, struggling with their sins, struggling with the past, struggling with guilt, 
And you're either a saint or an ain't. It's it. You're not in between. There's no in between. So if you're here today and you would just say, Lord, confirm it in my heart, Lord. I choose to believe. I choose to go on record and say because of Jesus, because of the grace, because of the might, because of the love, I can be and I am a saint in Jesus Christ. And I want to live that way and I want to walk that way and I want to be defined that way and I need your help to do so. Would you just raise your hand to the Lord right now and say, I want to be a saint. I need to be, I am a saint. Saint Luke. By the grace of God, by the mercy of God, by the faithfulness of Jesus. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name we wouldn't beat ourselves up. We wouldn't beat others up as well. We wouldn't look to ourselves, but we'd look to Jesus more and more and more, and you'd be pleased in that. Lord, if there's anybody here that would say, you know what, I want to be a saint. I need to be, I don't want to be an ain't. I'm born a sinner, and I've proved it too many times. I want to be redeemed. That's what he says. I'd like to give my life to Jesus Christ right now for the first time. Would you just raise your hand if that's you? I want to give your life to Jesus Christ. Lord, save the soul. Save the hearts, Lord. Save our minds save lord our purpose for jesus sake lord as we prepare ourselves to take communion now we do so celebrating that this counts this was worth it this was enough we don't have to add to it we get to enjoy it so lord be glorified as we take the body as we take the cup as we commemorate jesus in his sacrifice for us we are forgiven we are accepted we are secured we are enabled we are saints lord as we lower the lights as we prepare to worship we do so to the glory to the praise and the honor of your grace in jesus name we pray amen amen would you all stand with me and when you're ready to celebrate your sainthood Would the saints come down the aisle in Jesus' name and take communion back to the chairs that you came from and worship the Lord. There's saints on my right and left to pray for you during this time as well.